The call to worship is found in your bulletins, and it is taken from Psalm 95. Let's stand. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with songs. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. If you would turn now to your with your Trinity hymnals to hymn number 19. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Will you remain standing with me as we uh, bow before the Lord and ask him to bless our worship this morning? Father in heaven, we come into your 
holy temple, as it were, through the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have a great high priest, a great mediator between God and men that stands in the gap for sinners like us, purifying us with his blood, sanctifying us by his spirit and making every prayer and every song and every word spoken in truth acceptable in your sight. We thank you for the person of Christ. We pray that as we sing to you through him and as we pray to you through him, and that as we hear his words to us this morning, that this morning that our hearts would trust more, delight more in him as our ultimate prize. We pray that your spirit would be mighty at work within your people this morning. Let everything that we do be acceptable in your sight. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Turn again in your Trinity hymn book, hymnals to hymn number 133. Number 133. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Follow along as I read, please. This is the Word of God. 
After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, and lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in and was made well from whatever disease which he had, which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get him to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming down, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man that said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son of Man can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does these things, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives gives them life, Even so, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also he have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lump that was burning the lamp, was burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And as we go to prayer today, we'll remember the Perkins. We'll remember Abigail and Philip Perkins in Indonesia. And we will also pray for the Democratic Republic of the Congo in, uh, <clears throat> in that place where uh, there is darkness and there are people there working on behalf of Christ. So we'll be asking blessings on them. Let's pray together. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful Lord's Day and 
another opportunity to corporately come together and to worship you and to praise you for your goodness to us. Father, we thank you for the salvation which is found in Christ alone. And we pray, Father, that your word would go forth this day and would not return void, but it would be effective in the hearts and lives of those in attendance today and those who are watching uh, on um, the, the computer. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your great and almighty power. We thank you, Father, that you are love and all that you do is saturated with your love. Father, we ask that you would forgive us our sins and that you would help us, Lord, to walk in the flesh and not in the spirit. Father, we, we thank you for bringing healing, for bringing comfort and strength and wisdom into our lives. Father, we are truly helpless without you. And we can do nothing without you. We ask, Lord, that you would guide and direct us because you love your children so much. In fact, you love us so much that you do discipline us from time to time. And we pray, Father, that you would do what's necessary to keep us on your path. Help us, Father, to cling to Jesus Christ. We pray for those who may be on beds of affliction today, those who cannot be here for whatever reason. We ask, Lord, that you would draw near unto them and that you would uh, provide strength and comfort and peace that only you can provide. Father, we uh, do take a moment to pray for Abigail and Philip Perkins uh, uh, serving you in Indonesia. We pray, Father, that you would uh, lead and guide them in their family life. We pray, Father, that um, you would, uh, as they prepare to go to Indonesia, we pray that you would make a way that their visa and plane tickets and other supplies are uh, would be no problem to, to get. We pray, Father, that you would bless their marriage and that Christ would remain at the center of their marriage and in all that they do. We pray, Father, that you would bless their ministry. We pray, Father, that it would be effective in drawing sinners to the Lord. Father, we pray for the Democratic Republic of the Congo as well. It's a very dangerous place. There is kidnapping and violence there that is so commonplace. We would pray, Father, that you would bring stability and justice. We pray, Father, that you would give the church leaders there great wisdom and strength as they look after their members. We pray, Father, for more opportunities in helping the churches provide trauma counseling and emergency aid. 
Father, we pray for our nation today, and we pray, Father, that you would grant us repentance of sin. For until that happens, the very foundation of this nation is, is under threat to be dissolved. And so, Father, we pray, Father, that you would have mercy upon us. We pray, Father, that, that you would work in the lives of our leaders and that many would come to know the Savior. We pray, Father, for President Biden and Vice President Harris. We pray, Father, for members of Congress. We pray, Father, for the Supreme Court that you would, again, do, a, do an awesome work as only you can do. Father, we would ask that you would bless this church, that you would bless this body of believers. We pray, Father, that you would bless the preaching of the word today, the reading of the word. We pray that you would bless our hymn singing. Pray that you would bless our offering, our giving. We pray, Father, that you would help us to reach out in our county and that we would, as Scripture uh, time and again tells us that we should not neglect the poor amongst us. Help us, Lord, to be burdened with these things that we might uh, not simply say, go and be filled and be warmed, but help us to, in a physical way, to reach out and bless those, those who are perhaps lost and are suffering. So, Father, you are a great and awesome God, and we, we uh, thank you for your, your blessings. We thank you for your goodness to us, for your good all the time. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would, if you would turn in your Trinity hymnals to hymn number 136, Ye Servants of God. Or no.
Praise the Lord. You may be seated. The text of God's word that we're going to be looking into this morning is from Isaiah chapter 6. From Isaiah chapter 6, and I trust that this is a uh, familiar portion of scripture to many of us. As you know, we've been uh, semi-steadily marching through the attributes of God, considering each peculiar glory of our triune God as it comes to us. And this morning, we're going to continue in that, and we're going to consider the attribute of God that is on display in this vision that the Lord gives Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died. The words of this him saying or shouted by the angels surrounding the throne of God is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory or may the whole earth be full of his glory. So today's message is entitled, Behold Our God, Holy, Holy, Holy. And we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6, but just as a, a brief introductory note Romans chapter 1 details the corruption of our thoughts and how as fallen creatures we think wrongly about God and begin to project creaturely weakness and creaturely finitude on the infinitely strong uncreated God. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, and then what happens? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I would submit to you that even when it doesn't go that far to actually worshiping images of creeping things, we're prone to take God and make him a man. We are prone to project creaturely weakness onto the infinite self-existent creator of all things who needs none of us. And I think that we do that sort of with, with each of his attributes. So what I've been trying to do in this series is take the attributes as they come and then find those, those aspects of that attribute that seem fuzzy in our thinking because we have a tendency to project our creaturely weakness on to the Creator. Some of these attributes seem confusing to us because as creatures we have, a, we have a hard time making sense of the Creator. But when you take some of those aspects of these individual attributes and you put your finger on the things that we find confusing about them or the things about these attributes that perhaps don't make sense to us, you can begin to clear away the fog and see our infinitely perfect God who is not a creature in all of his glory. 
So that's what we've been trying to do as we take, away, as we take each attribute as it comes to us. We've explained things like what his, what his uh, omnipotence means. What is God's power? How are we confused about God's power? And how can we rightly ascribe all power to God? Or we take God's knowledge. How is God's knowledge different from our knowledge as creatures? Does he get his knowledge in the same way as creatures do? Does he attain his knowledge like creatures do? So some of, And as we consider those things that we can find confusing about these attributes, we begin to think more clearly about the God who does not have any of our creaturely imperfections. And I want to do the same thing this morning that I want to do it. I want us to approach the attribute of God's holiness. And I was, uh, I was blessed to grow up under the ministry of a man who was captivated by God's holiness. And this gospel ministry that was captivated by the holiness of God laid a foundation for the grace of the gospel to take root. I learned that holiness... Considered from one perspective is God's freedom from and opposition to sin. And what this did for me was it laid a foundation for me to receive Jesus Christ later on in life. Because I already understood as one of my most basic assumptions about the creator of the universe is that what separates me from him is my sin and my rebellion to him. That sin cannot come into his presence. That I'm like Isaiah says in this text, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is the reaction that the holiness of God is meant to draw out of us. So I thought of God's holiness primarily as his purity his moral purity, his freedom from the defilement of sin. But as I was studying for this, this sermon, as I, and as I was reading the scriptures and other extra-biblical literature on this attribute of God, what I began to notice is that the, what the Bible has to say about God's holiness encompasses a whole lot more than just his freedom from sin. What the Bible has to say about God's holiness encompasses not only his freedom from moral defilement, but in some way it folds in all of the other attributes of God as well. And this is such a stark reality in Scripture that scholars, a lot of scholars can't even figure out what holiness means in Scripture. There's about... There's about 18 different opinions about what God's holiness means in biblical scholarship. But I think that Isaiah's vision here gives us a clear view of what God's holiness means. So let's read the text of God's word this morning. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, or I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Will you come before the Lord with me in prayer together to bless the reading of his word? Heavenly Father, we ask you that you will bless the reading of your word to your people this morning. We pray that your spirit would work it into all the dark corners of our hearts for the glory of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I think that this text inspires, first, the question of God's holiness. What is it? Because like I said, this vision is principally concerned with the holiness of God. In fact, this vision is so concerned with God's holiness that it uses a phrase that is used nowhere else in Scripture where an attribute of God is raised to the third power three times the superlative. In Hebrew literature, repeating yourself was a way of emphasizing something. And this is an emphasis that is found nowhere else in Scripture about any other attribute of God. The only other place where we, found, where we find uh, something repeated three times like this is in Revelation chapter 5, where these same creatures are singing this same song. So we see that God's holiness is absolutely central to this vision. It gets into all of the corners and permeates everything that Isaiah sees. But Isaiah sees a lot of different things in this vision. And all of those different things that Isaiah sees sort of make us scratch our heads about this mysterious nature of God's holiness. So the first thing that I want to draw your attention to that should make us question what God's holiness actually is in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, or Cliff likes the pronunciation, Ushayah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, or in Hebrew, the Adonai, sitting on a throne high and lifted up. Even the very first words of this vision have something to do with what it means for God to be holy. Uzziah's reign was a reign that was characterized by, in some ways, unprecedented in recent history, uh, prosperity in the nation of Israel. And if you remember who Uzziah was, you remember how he died and how tragic his death was. He essentially died in shame. But this reign of this king that had been especially prosperous was a sign of judgment for the rest of the nation. This king dying under the judgment of God was spelling out 
negative uh, aspects of Israel's future. And it sort of symbolized the judgment that Israel was coming under because as goes the king, so goes the people. So the death of Uzziah under those circumstances would have produced a lot of fears on behalf of the people because Uzziah was a glorious king in his heyday. But here's what Isaiah is seeing and uh, articulating first and foremost about this vision. This glorious king that was dying in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Adonai, or the Lord. In Hebrew, Adonai is that title for God that expresses his unmitigated authority. Adonai, or Lord, uh, means master, or it means Lord. It expresses his kingship over his people and over all things. So you could paraphrase this and say, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the king. In the year that this glorious king died, I saw the king enthroned in more glory than you could ever imagine. And what I saw was so glorious that even the seraphim have to shield their, shield their eyes from staring into it directly. So in this vision that concerns God's holiness, we have his sovereign authority and power over all things on display. So in some way, God's holiness uh, folds in that aspect of his being as well. So it's holiness through his sovereign authority and power as the Adonai or the Lord. But that's not the only thing you see in verse 1. Look also at what this Adonai is doing. He's sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. This is separation. This glorious king is so transcendently exalted that he is lifted up even above the heavenly beings. So not only does he have sovereign authority and power, but there is something being communicated about the nature of this king. He is exalted above everything that is creaturely. So in some way, his holiness folds that reality in as well. And then look at the last aspect of this, this vision of the one sitting on the throne. And this is one that is a little bit strange. The end of verse 1. He's high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I've always found that to be a strange descriptor. Because what is actually being communicated about the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up? I understand all that. But then his robe doesn't just go down the steps of his throne, it doesn't just go down the aisle of his court. Instead, it fills the entire room of God's abode as if it were pressing everything else out. It fills that whole domain. The train of his robe filled the temple. This is Isaiah's vision of the heavenly temple that ultimately the earthly temple was meant to match. This is the throne of God. And the train of his robe fills the entire place the entire holiest place in that temple. So as I was, at, I was doing some research and I asked my, tried to ask myself, well, what does that mean? 
And R.C. Sproul, in his series, The Holiness of God, notes that in ancient Near Eastern cultures, the length of a ruler's robe signified the level of majesty that that ruler possessed. So we have his sovereign authority, we have his transcendence, and we have the train of his robe filling the temple, meaning this king dwells in more majesty than any other ruler on earth. Think majestic beauty when you see this robe. So somehow God's unapproachable, majestic beauty is being folded in to his holiness as well. So those are three different things that you could say about God that are all being incorporated into this vision that concerns his holiness. They're all somehow related to that. So the question is what are we to make make of God's holiness? What actually is it? But I'm not done making you uncomfortable yet because all throughout Scripture you see different different sorts of attributes connected with his holiness too. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22. This psalm that is so memorable because it foretells the piercing of our Savior, the true and better David. Psalm 22, 3 and 4. He says, this suffering psalmist who is talking about his groaning, who cries to God, he says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. So what attribute is being displayed in connection with his holiness by the psalmist here? He says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. It is trustworthiness. It's the fact that God is truth, he cannot lie, and out of that reality he is always faithful to his people. That is being connected to holiness by the psalmist. That's the basis of the psalmist's trust in the Lord and all of Israel's trust in the Lord. He is enthroned on the praises of Israel because he is worthy of all their trust. Turn again with me to Psalm 89. The Psalms are the best, some of the best places to go to see this reality because of their, because of their lyrical nature. Psalm 89, verses 15 through 18. Psalm 89, verses 15 through 18. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, shout of praise at Israel's feasts, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. So what is being spoken of about God in this psalm in connection with this title, the Holy One of Israel? They walk 
by the light of his face, his loving care for them to guide them through every trial and tribulation. So his love is on display in connection with his holiness. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. Our shield belongs to the Lord. His sovereign power and commitment to protect his people is on display in connection with the fact that he's the Holy One of Israel. Just to quote a couple of more texts, you don't have to turn there, but in Psalm chapter 3, verse 4, the psalmist says, connects God's holiness to his answering his people's prayers. The Holy One of Israel answers the prayers of his people. Even if you're going to look at just the rest of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 43, verses 14 and 15, the Holy One of Israel means that he is Israel's redeemer. God's commitment to redeem Israel throughout the rest of Isaiah's prophecy is connected with his holiness. And if you, read, if you were to read Isaiah's prophecy all in one sitting, that's what you would find over and over and over again. The Holy One of Israel redeems his people. The Holy One of Israel magnifies himself in the whole earth by redeeming the people that he set his love upon. So, I think that it's sufficiently proven that we have to move beyond just the edges of what we might call moral purity when we consider holiness. Holiness is that. It is God's freedom and defilement from sin. And we do see that in Isaiah's vision. He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So God's moral purity, his moral majesty is on display, but there's more than that on display in the biblical doctrine of God's holiness. So what are we saying when we say that God is holy, holy, holy? What are we ascribing to him? And I think that we get a picture of what we're describing to him or we get a clue about what it is in the actions of the seraphim. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 6 if you're not already there. Isaiah chapter 6. The seraphim have their entire existence seemingly centered around God's holiness. They are the ones who utter the most, one of the most memorable songs in all of Scripture, holy, holy, holy. But look at what they're doing as they sing that song. Because this gives us a clue as to what God's holiness means. Verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So this very odd creature, or odd from our perspective, is doing three things, or four things. He's crying out with his voice. He's flying with two wings, but with the other two sets of wings, he's covering his face so that he won't see the one who sits on the throne, and he's covering his feet. Now ask yourself, why would these seraphim be doing that? Because, and, and this, is, this is interesting, because seraphim are holy creatures. They're some of God's holy angels, they're not stained by sin. So in this song where they're crying out, holy, 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 and this holiness of God 
is such a powerful reality that even these holy creatures have to shield their eyes. Something more than just his freedom from sin is on display here because the seraphim are free from sin. They're not fallen angels. These are holy angels who exist entirely to glorify the one who sits on that throne. But even these holy angels have to shield their eyes from the one who sits there because the sight of him is so terrifying. His holiness must mean something other than sinlessness. Holy creatures cannot look, cannot gaze at the glory of the holy God. But they also cover their feet. There's a lot of disagreement about what this covering of their feet means, but I think we get a taste of it in Exodus chapter 3. What happens in Exodus chapter 3? It's the burning bush. It's where Moses sees this bush that is burning but is not consumed. And as he comes near it, the voice of the Lord cries to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet because the place you are standing is holy ground. Why does God have him take his sandals off? And why are these, the sandals are what goes on your feet and what touches the earth? And why are these creatures covering their feet in the presence of God? I think at least part of the answer, and there may be more reasons than this, at least part of the answer is because feet signify creatureliness. Our feet are what touches the dust of the earth and gathers the dust of the earth. So when Moses is told, don't come any closer, the place where you're standing is holy ground, take off your sandals, there is a a recognition there that I'm coming into the presence of the God whose holiness means his transcendence. I'm coming into the presence of the God who is not a creature. And I think that's what the seraphim are saying too by covering their feet. They're saying, this one exists in such infinite perfection and glory that I'm going to cover my feet because I am a creature in the presence of the creator of all things. That's what the seraphim are saying. That's why they can't gaze into his glory, even though they're free from the defilement of sin. Because God's holiness isn't just about his freedom from sin. God's holiness is about the fact that he is not one of us. He is separate. He's infinite in majesty and glory. It's every perfection of his nature. The actions of these seraphim actually illustrate what the Hebrew root of the word holy means. The Hebrew word holy is kadosh, but the Hebrew word kad means to cut or to separate. So the actions of these seraphim, by shielding their eyes from the one who sits on the throne, recognizing that he is not one of them, and by covering their feet, recognizing their creatureliness, they are recognizing something so important for us to understand about God. He is not one of us. We must not make the mistake about God, uh, make the mistake of thinking that God is like us. We worship a God who is infinite in beauty and glory, the one who is not clothed with imperfection like we are. 
These seraphim are saying in their song that the one who sits on the throne is separated unto himself. He's in a category of being totally his own. That's at least the foundation of what these seraphim are saying. And it's the foundation of what God's holiness means. It means, in part, that he's separated from creatures even in the way that he exists. In who that he is, he is separated from us. But holiness also means something else, too. That's the negative aspect of holiness. The negative aspect of holiness is separation. But there's a positive aspect, too. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. When, when an object or a person in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament for that matter, but peculiarly in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the service of the temple, when those objects or the priests are sanctified, what is happening to them? They're being devoted to the service of the Lord. What happens when the priest has the blood of the sacrifice sprinkled on him and he's charged with the service of the temple? It's saying, you are being taken from common use. You're being cut off from everything that is profane and you're being devoted solely to the service of God. That's what's happening. So at the heart of holiness is devotion to God. The vessels in the temple were devoted to the service of the Lord. The priests were devoted to the service of the Lord. The tabernacle itself was devoted to the Lord. It's where God's glory dwelt. So these things and these people would be sanctified by the sprinkling of the blood and that would set them apart from everything that was common and it would put them in the realm of the sacred. So at the heart of holiness is devotion. And this is true in the New Testament as well. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And verse 2 here is, is where we see it. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. What has happened to the believer? They've had their, the Father's love set on them from all eternity, but then it's in the sanctification of the Spirit. The, the Spirit of God has made us holy, sanctified us, set us apart, and devoted us to God. We've been taken from the kingdom of the world and transplanted into the kingdom of God. But notice, but notice what else Peter says. For obedience to Jesus Christ... At the heart of holiness, at the heart of our being set apart unto Christ, is obedience and devotion to Him. So the negative aspect of holiness is separation from everything else. The positive aspect is devotion to God. And that is true for all creatures that have been sanctified. That is true for us in Christ. When God forgave us, of our sins and sanctified us in Christ. He set us apart to be wholly His possession. But I think you have to ask yourself, if holiness has devotion at the heart of it, then 
What does God's holiness mean? If holiness has these two different aspects to it, separation for God, separation from everything that is creaturely, what does God's devotion have to do with this? Is God holy in himself? Let's say take creation out of the picture. Take, so there's nothing for him to be separate from. Is God still holy? Is God holy in himself? Or is he holy because of a relationship of transcendence between him and creation? And this is actually a good uh, mark of when you think of any attribute of God. You think about whether... You think about whether this attribute would apply to God in himself, above and apart from creation. And this is actually one of the reasons that, just as an apologetic, something of apologetic value, this is one of the reasons that Muslims can't truly believe in a God who is love. Because above and apart from creation, a God who is not a trinity has no object of his love. But the triune God, the God of the Bible, exists in eternal love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we see that above and apart from creation, God is love because the Father is the object of the love of the Son. The Son is the object of the love of the Father. And the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is the bond of love between them forever. So God's love is is an essential attribute. And I would submit to you that his holiness is an essential attribute as well, above and apart from creation. And here's why. Our holiness, in part, means devotion to God. But ultimately, that's what God's holiness is, too. Look at verse 3. And one called to another in this song... And he said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Or may the whole earth be full of his glory. What is the angel saying here? He's saying, God, for your own purposes, set apart unto yourself in your own will and in your own love for yourself, glorify yourself in all creation in everything that you do, including the redemption of this nation that you're going to promise to do throughout this prophecy. God's holiness is his devotion to himself. He is, God's holiness is his godness for the sake of himself. The Father sends the Son into the world for the sake of glorifying the Son. The Son does everything that He does in the world for the sake of glorifying the Father. The Holy Spirit exalts the Son of God. Everything that God does in all of His purposes, in all of His will, is devoted first and foremost to Himself and to His own glory. That is just a glimpse of God's holiness. It's every one of his attributes working together for his own purposes and for the magnification of his name in such a way that he is exalted from everything creaturely. So what is the holiness of God? It is God's pure, infinite devotion to himself above all things, which produces a chasm between him and his creatures. So there's separation and there's devotion. There's God's devotion to God and God's separation from his creatures. 
God has pure, undivided devotion to himself. But then you, there's still one more question. If, God, if this is what God's holiness is, then what's the reason for Isaiah's focus on moral purity at the end of this, at the end of this vision? Because that is what comes immediately into view. What is Isaiah immediately, inescapably aware of when he comes into the presence of God? And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the, vo- and the house was filled with smoke. The house was filled with smoke, and it shielded Isaiah, separated him from the one who sat on the throne. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's vision of this transcendent God automatically brings to his mind his own sinfulness. It brings his own uncleanness, his own filthiness into his view. But if really all of the attributes of God and every perfection of God is what constitutes his holiness then why is Isaiah focused on his moral plight in this text? Why is it Isaiah's sin that separates him from God? Because what does the God who is infinitely devoted to himself and to his own glory and set apart unto himself do with people who have rebelled against him? This shows us how personal sin is. It's not just failure to live up to a certain set of rules. It's spitting in the face of this God who sits on the throne and who is infinitely devoted to himself. Sin is personal. Every single one of our sins is high treason against the God whose ultimate aim is his own glory and intends to be glorified in our actions. That's why sin is so heinous. That's why sin is what sets, what brings this chasm between him and God. Isaiah's cry is almost like the cry of dereliction in this text. He says, I am lost. This could also be translated, I am undone. I'm coming apart at the seams. The majesty of God in contact with sinners who are hell-bent on defying him. That's what is in view here. But look at, look at God graciously ministering to Isaiah's need. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The burning coal might seem a little bit odd, but understand that the altar in the heavenly temple is mirroring the place of atonement. This is the place where the priests would bring the blood of the substitutionary sacrifice and sprinkle it on the altar so that the chasm can be breached between God's people. And in the Old Testament, burning or fire, the burning coal, is often a symbol of judgment. So how is Isaiah's sin taken away at the end of this text? And how is he set apart, devoted to God, and commissioned to go be a prophet of Yahweh? 
sin under judgment. This ultimately pictures the Lord Jesus Christ in his substitutionary sacrifice where salvation would be brought to his people through judgment. That is the means by which we are reconciled to God. That is the means by which Isaiah was reconciled to God and set apart for his purposes. When you see the burning coal touch Isaiah's lips and you hear the words, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for, what you need to see is the blood of the Lamb who was slain for you. God's judgment that burned against you falling upon another. That is what reconciles sinners to a holy God. Jesus Christ has fully paid the price for every single one of our sins. So much so that a man who says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips can be forgiven and set apart wholly to the service of the Lord. This is Isaiah's justification. This is Isaiah's full and free forgiveness of sins so that he can be in fellowship with this holy God. And it only comes through Jesus Christ because he died and paid the price for our sins, bore our judgment on that cross, and rose again from the dead. This text not only shows us the holiness of God, it shows us how unholy sinners can be made right with a holy God. And that is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in other things to be made right with this holy God who sits on the throne, know this, nothing else will avail except the blood of Jesus who was slain for your sins. Nothing else will make you holy enough to stand in his presence except the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ standing in your place. So if you haven't come to Christ this morning, I pray that you would come to Christ today. I pray that you would see him for the awesome, sufficient, beautiful Savior that he is. He's powerful enough to take away every single one of your sins for his own glory. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have a beautiful, powerful Savior who stands at your right hand even this very moment, who is our righteousness before your throne, who cleanses us, who purifies us, and who sets us into right relationship with you and devotes us to your service. We ask you to take this word and make it effectual in our hearts for our transformation into Christ's image. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd stand with me, and as we close, turn in your hymns of grace to number 364, How Firm a Foundation. Hymns of grace, 364, How Firm a Foundation.
Well, I hope you've been blessed by the looking into God's Word together. Uh, we're going to have lunch downstairs. We'll be back here for the second service at uh, 1.45. And just as a reminder, in case you don't come to the second service, uh, we do have a walkthrough of a potential candidate for a new building at 3 p.m. You can get with any of the deacons or myself to get the address for that, but just know that we're walking through that building together as a congregation at uh, 3 p.m. today. So you're dismissed.